And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, with Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. So reads the Word of God. There are times in life where you just need to sing. Do you agree? There's times in life where you just need to sing. The need usually arises out of something remarkable that has happened or something grand or something overwhelming or something captivating. It almost speaks for itself. If you're watching a a movie and someone is alone in a room doing something indiscernible but is singing lightly to themselves, it communicates a massive amount. Sometimes you just need to sing and we understand what singing is about. We're talking about singing together as a body of believers. What an important priority it is for us and how often that came back to us as elders during this discussion about Sunday evenings. Sometimes you just need to sing. It's amazing where this shows up. Christmas Eve, 1914, during World War I, the calendar took precedence over the conflict for a short time that day. From mid-afternoon on, the stories are told of a, a ceasefire, unofficial ceasefire, one that was just enacted by the soldiers themselves. And during that window, among other remarkable things that happened, the German troops sang Silent Night from their trenches, and the Brits responded with the first Noel. Sometimes you just need to sing. In the wake of 9-11 terrorist attacks, do you remember our congressmen and women on the steps of the Capitol? Do you remember them singing, God bless America? A prayer to God in the midst of our need. Less treacherous battles, soccer fans worldwide are famous for singing support for their clubs throughout the match. Sometimes it gets a little old, but there are times when you just have to sing. Musicians have often written songs on the birth of their children. Some of them are familiar, John Lennon, Stevie Wonder, many others. Songs of celebration, sometimes you just need to sing. 
We sing to celebrate. We sing to commemorate. We sing to comprehend. There are times we just need to sing. So it really should come as no surprise to us that Luke's narrative of Jesus' birth, this remarkable, previously unprecedented, since unequaled event in human history, Luke's record of it, which is more complete than any of the other Gospels, is punctuated with songs. And we're going to move through those songs over the next few weeks as part of Advent. These days, for some reason, these songs in in Luke's birth narrative of Jesus are often remembered with their Latin titles. The opening word in the Latin translation of the Scriptures, there's the Benedictus, sung by Zechariah, verses 68 to 79 of chapter 1 here. There's the, the Gloria that is sung by the angels or spoken by the angels in chapter 2, verse 14, on the night that Jesus was born. Eight days later in the temple, there's the Nuctimidus, Simeon's song, chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. But first and foremost among those songs is the passage that's in front of us today here, the one that we just read together, Mary's song, the Magnificat, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. Let's immerse ourselves in her story for a few minutes here, even before we move into the outline that's in your bulletin. Let's just immerse ourselves in her story one more time. Let's let's enter into her worship to get it, to understand what's on Mary's heart. As best as we can tell from the hints that are in the text here. And let's do that with an understanding of the fact that her song is recorded in Scripture in order to give words to our own response to this great salvation that God has provided. So Mary isn't just responding in her heart. She's being used by the Spirit of God to give words to the people of God throughout the course of the church's history to celebrate and to remember and to rejoice in the birth of Jesus. So let's move into this story. The angel Gabriel there at verse 26, one of only two named angels in the Bible. Gabriel and Michael are the only two names we know. Gabriel was sent by God to Mary. Mary, a young peasant girl, probably no more than 14 years old, quite possibly even younger than that. She was from Galilee, a region not held in high regard. And worse, she was from Nazareth the most despised city among the Galilean towns. Mary, as one writer put it, was a nobody from a non-place. That's who's introduced to us in Luke chapter 1 in the Word of God. A nobody from a non-place. Ponder for a moment the areas that you would least like to be from places where you would least like to have grown up. Our temptation is to think of tough, hard neighborhoods right here in the United States, but friends, it's not like that. Think of war-torn countries where food is scarce and 
shelter is non-existent and your bed is the flat dust of the earth. And now you're starting to approach the life that Mary would have known far better than we. A nobody from a non-place, but, but God had an assignment for her. The angel Gabriel said to Mary, verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Catch the irony? Hold Mary in your mind and what we just said about her, and now she hears from an angel of God, you're going to bear a son, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. You're going to bear the king. And he will reign over the house of Jacob longer than any other king in Israel or Judah's history. Longer than any other king on record in this world? That doesn't even begin to tell it, does it? He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Folks, These are simple words and we're really familiar with them, but these are incomprehensible given the circumstances that were set up before they were spoken. This doesn't even make sense considering the one to whom they were spoken. A young, teenage, poverty-stricken, probably, almost certainly illiterate young woman. What do you do with these words? Well, after he explained the pertinent details of the fact that this was going to happen without even having a husband yet, she's engaged, but that's as far as it's gone. After he explained the pertinent details of what we now glibly refer to as the virgin birth, talk about a non sequitur. Talk about an oxymoron, a virgin birth. Let's not get too familiar with this passage. Let's let it strike us with awe every time we hear it. After the angel Gabriel explained the pertinent details of what we call the virgin birth, Mary accepted the job. God communicated through Gabriel. Verse 38, and she said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She's God's servant. If he has need of her, she's available for anything. Kent Hughes called this passivity. Kind of gives the wrong impression at first, doesn't it? But think about it. He called it passivity. Receiving God's assignment without straining against it. Just good with it. God has called me to this, and I embrace it 
It's his assignment. That's tough in this world. The assignments that he gives are not always easy ones, are they? My friends, we don't have to get outside this room before we see some really difficult assignments in this life. Do you know today is Chase Ewald's birthday? Isn't that a sweet thing to think about? It's on my heart as I preach this text because, wow, what a little miracle, but what hard assignment. If God had need of Mary, she was available for anything. She was passive in that sense. She would receive from God that which he gave. Calm reliance is another way to talk about it. Where you stop seeking his approval and just rest in his grace. You rest in his grace for whatever he has provided for in these present circumstances to which he's called you. He has described this as a necessary step before the active obedience of worship that we see from Mary in her trip and in her song here in this text. Hard steps of obedience must always begin in the heart, reconciling ourselves with God's calling in our life, embracing that, receiving it, and then depending on His grace to pursue it. There had to be some uncertainty, though, in Mary's heart. Even as she demonstrated her confidence to trust in God by, by saying, I'll do whatever you ask, and then by hurrying off to see Elizabeth, to talk with her about it. Her older relative, who evidently, we can just assume, had helped Mary make sense of other things in her life. And after hearing this word, she rushes off to see her relative. We see a vivid contrast in Mary's outlook from verse 38 to verse 39 here in this text. She passively received this absolutely bewildering assignment from God, and then she went with haste to visit her aging relative, right? A a study in contrast. She's acting. So we asked, what moved her? What moved her to go see Elizabeth? Well, there, there had to be some element of relief, I would think, at the thought of not hanging around Nazareth while your pregnancy begins to show. So there's a practical side that might have been very desirable for Mary at this time. But there also had to be some anticipation of what she might receive in the presence of Elizabeth, this woman she knew to be a godly sister. There must have been some anticipation of greater relief, of of fellowship, of guidance, of reassurance that she would receive from spending spending some time with a godly older woman whom we are told right here in this text, back in verse 6, walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. There's God's own testimony to the life of Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah. Walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Mary's looking forward to this dialogue. Is there an older believer in your life? Someone who knows the Word and who loves the Lord and who walks in a way that you aspire to walk with Him? Is there? How much do you treasure that person? Almost certainly a godly young woman like Mary would have felt quite similarly about a godly older woman like Elizabeth. 
And Mary had several days of travel to think about what she wanted to say to Elizabeth and about what Elizabeth might have to say back to her. Now, as a faithful Jewish girl, although, as we mentioned, she was probably illiterate, Mary would have memorized large portions of Scripture, just part of the discipleship routine at that time. She would have known, for instance, many of the Psalms of David and the songs of both Deborah and Hannah. And it seems as though the latter, the song of Hannah, was really fixed in her mind as she traveled because the very first words she spoke after she got to the hill country of Judah sound strikingly like 1 Samuel chapter 2 in Hannah's song. Many resonances between Hannah's reflection on God's graciousness to her in giving her a son, Samuel, and Mary's reflection on this amazing assignment that she had just received from God to bear the one who is known to be the promised Messiah, the one who would sit on the throne of his father, David, forever. Before she uttered those words, though, other things happened. Mary spent a good amount of time in listener mode before she spoke anything. Probably before she was even prepared to speak anything. It's quite possible that her thoughts came together even as she was listening to what happened here. She listened to the prophecy of Elizabeth. She listened to the blessings pronounced upon her and her newly conceived child. She listened to Elizabeth's humble amazement that the mother of her Lord should visit her and that the child in her own womb at her old age was actually responding to the presence of the child in Mary's womb. And she listened to a reminder that they are blessed They are blessed who believe what the Lord speaks concerning them will be fulfilled. Verse 45. Meanwhile, the conspicuous silence from Zechariah's temporary curse, his wordless state after coming out of the temple, the passage we looked at last week and his hearing from the angel, that conspicuous silence from Zechariah provided a dramatic contrast to all this verbal blessing that's going on here. Everything that Mary's hearing in the silence of the priest must have spoken loudly. But now, at this point, having heard all of this, having listened and taken in the scene that's there in the household of Zechariah and Elizabeth in the hill country of Judah, Mary was now full. She was full. She was full to overflowing. She says so herself in her song. She'd been humbled by the angel's exalted greeting. And now she's been exalted by Elizabeth's humble blessing. Sometimes you just have to sing. That's what Mary gives us here. By the inspiration and guidance of the Spirit of God, she sings in response to her circumstances. 
And as she sings, what is clear at the heart of her message is that she is overwhelmed, absolutely overwhelmed by the deliverance, by the salvation of God. She's overwhelmed. So now, let's walk through the three parts of her song very quickly this morning. The three parts of her song, they're listed for you there in your bulletin as the outline will follow for this brief section. First, it's just her reflection, her personal reflection in verses 46 to 49, then more of a theological reflection in verses 50 to 53, and then perhaps a more historical reflection in verses 54 to 55, but honestly, it hangs together as a unit, and you just see those emphases kind of bubbling to the surface as she reflects on the greatness of the glory and the goodness of God. So let's move into her personal reflections here and then move through this text and see what we see. Verse 46, the most familiar of her lines, we hear it as the summary of the song as a whole. My soul magnifies the Lord. We just sang it together in one version. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Beautiful Hebraic parallelism here. Poetry like we see in the Psalms. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. In the depth of Mary's inner being, she swelled up with joyful worship at the salvation of God. The topic sentence, the heading, the title track of this song. This word magnifies, by the way, is a good one. It's a good one. Magnifies means exactly what you expect, to enlarge, to make great, to make conspicuous. My soul magnifies the Lord. Clearly, Mary is not suggesting that somehow her experience is making God himself greater. God is not increasing here. It's just the way you talk about your response when you hear something like this from God. What you hear here, what you see here, what's going on with Mary here is that God is being magnified and enlarged in her own soul, in her spirit. There's something about the greatness of the glory of this God that through this experience is just exploding Mary's concept of God in her own heart. She is overwhelmed with worship. That's where we get the word. She's just overwhelmed with worship. The magnificent work of the Lord and His deliverance of His people, including her and Elizabeth, and their place in the plan and purpose of such a, a great and saving God, all of this is so, so overwhelmingly astounding to Mary that the immense and omnipresent God is growing even larger in the imagination of her heart. In the depths of her inner being. In Ephesians 3, we read a prayer. Paul prays that, that the, the Ephesians 
would know a love that surpasses knowledge. He prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Now, they're already believers. He's not praying that they'll become converted. He's praying that, the, that their faith in God will swell inside them and that their knowledge of His love will increase to such an extent that they'll recognize it's indescribable. That you might know the love of God that's beyond being known. Let's that's happening in Mary. She's putting into words her own experience with that kind of encounter with God. He's blowing up in her mind and in her heart. Brand new levels of imagination of the depths of who God is in her inner being. You might say she is breathless in worship. And we get that from the first verse. My soul magnifies the Lord and rejoices in God my Savior. Why? Verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. <laughs> he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. I'm from Nazareth. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. How does that happen? We have rags to riches stories in our world that just, just baffle us. Do we? What a great thing. Bring tears to your eyes as you hear the story told. My friends, I guarantee you there has never, ever been one like this one. Never. This great God has looked on a nobody from a non-place. And because of that, she would now be known and recognized as blessed. A recipient of all the goodness of God by everyone, everywhere, for all time, blessed by this God. That's why. Why else? Verse 49. Again, we just sang this together. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, she said, and holy is his name. This, it, it's as though this great God has done great things for me, and yet somehow His name is still holy. How can this God do this for me and still be considered a holy God? Well, His holiness isn't threatened by His grace and by His mercy. The mighty one has done great things for her, and holy is His name. This mighty God has done great things for the nobody from nowhere. It's not like He just chose to exalt her for no good reason, you know, like she's, she's just won some sort of cosmic lottery or something. No, it's for a purpose. He has selected this one for the fulfillment of his purpose. This holy God had purpose to use her. This girl, a humble bond slave, this God had chosen to place her in a leading role 
and his grand plan to rescue all who believe. What a great place. What other words can you come up with to express this? What a great place. And what glorious humility God himself displays by choosing this lump of clay whom we call Mary for this purpose. What glorious humility God displays through the selection of Mary for this assignment makes you wonder what he might display through each of us, doesn't it? What has he displayed? Clearly what we know here is that if he could use Mary, he could use anyone. Moving on into her theological reflections, here in this song we see that it's not just Mary who benefits from God's work through her. Verse 50, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation, not just isolated right here in first century Judah and Israel, but for all who fear Him from one generation to the next. God is abundant in mercy. This word mercy is used four more times in the remainder of Luke 1 in these songs of Mary and Zechariah. Lamentations 3, a familiar passage that Mary would have known almost certainly from memory. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. His mercy is abundant. Every day, His mercy is fully replenished and never exhausted through the course of the day. God is rich in mercy, Ephesians chapter 2. But we also have to say that His rich mercy is not distributed equally to all. This saving mercy that is celebrating here as by Mary's song is actually reserved for those who fear Him. It's reserved for those who fear Him, for those who reverence Him as God the way she's doing. It's reserved for those who delight in Him, for those who worship Him, for those whose, whose own souls are, are overwhelmed with adoration and thanksgiving for this God of a great salvation. His mercy is reserved in unique expression for them. In the next three verses here, actually in the next five on into the final section, Mary captures some of the manifestations of God's mercy. That's what we see in the progression here. Mary captures some of the manifestations of God's mercy. But the grammatical structure is interesting. She used past tense verbs here. Past tense verbs that usually refer to particular past events as she's talking about these mercies of God. But it seems like she's actually using them to look forward to the blessings of the coming Messiah. 
And you'll know if you've studied biblical prophecy long, that's not an uncommon event to talk about future realities as though they are as good as done by using past tense verbs to talk about them. They're finished. They're, they're done. They're accomplished. They are undeniable. They will happen. And it's like Mary is talking in that way here about the blessings that are coming through the promised Messiah that she will bear spoken of is already having been done. Now there's no doubt that we could find some prominent events in Israel's history to tie off Mary's reflections to, all right? Verse 51, God has shown strength with his arm. Isn't that the very language we use for the deliverance of Israel from Egypt? That's how scripture describes it. It could tie off to that. Verse 51, he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Boy, I recall the destruction of Sennacherib's army. 2 Kings 19, 185,000 Assyrians struck down overnight by the angel of the Lord. Verse 52, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel chapter 4. And God has exalted those of humble estate. How about David, the one on whose throne Messiah will sit? Jesse's youngest son, the shepherd, anointed king by Samuel, Hannah's son, to replace Saul. Yeah, we could look back. We could look back and tie these off to past events, but I don't believe that's what Mary's doing here. I don't believe that's what she's referring to. I believe she's looking to the future, to all that will be done through the work of her son, through the coming of the promised Messiah. All these manifestations of God's mercy and judgment will be ratcheted up as we move forward in His plan of redemption, as it continues to unfold, as the greatness and the glory of His salvation is played out before the eyes of those who are watching, that which has been done in the past will just be exceeded through the present and into the future. And that, I believe, is what Mary is saying here under the inspiration of the Spirit. All these manifestations of God's mercy and judgment will be ratcheted up as we move forward in His plan of redemption all the way to the point where His children are fully and finally delivered and where His enemies are fully and finally defeated. All the way. We can see one manifestation of this in the the humbling of Herod in Acts 12. We just looked at it in our Acts series and An event still future for Mary when she spoke this, but one that reminds us something of Nebuchadnezzar. And there in Acts chapter 12, as the people were ascribing deity to Herod, the text says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And in the last days, Revelation 17 and 18, all of the arrogant world powers will finally be brought down by God in judgment, just as John describes in those chapters. Another thing is clearly communicated here in Mary's song as well. 
there will be a great reversal of values. A reversal of fortunes in Messiah's economy. Hannah spoke of this as well in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It won't be those who are perceived as privileged here and now who will be the recipients of God's deliverance. It won't be the proud or the powerful or the prosperous. Rather, it's the humble who will be honored. It's the lowly who will be lifted up. It's the famished who will be fed. And Mary is speaking primarily in moral, spiritual terms here, not economic or sociological We are all poor in spirit apart from relationship with God, whether we have money or not. It's just often the case in this life that those who lack the resources of this world are more inclined, more receptive to the message of the gospel than those who are affluent. So Mary is not speaking in in economic or sociological terms here. She's speaking in moral and spiritual terms The economically poor can be just as proud and self-sufficient as the rich. But Mary is talking to the pious poor. As one writer put it, she's speaking of those who recognize their need and are thus less reluctant to turn to God for help. She's speaking of the same ones that Jesus will later address when He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. When he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Those are the ones Mary is talking about. And she continues this thought right on into the last section of her psalm here in verses 54 and 55. All of this blessing and judgment, all of this raising up and bringing down will be accomplished without reshaping or retooling or compromising any of the promises that God has already made to His people. In fact, they are fulfilled through the fulfillment of those very same promises. He will remember His mercy to Israel, verse 54. He has helped them, and He will help them still. This word help, again, is well translated, but it it also suggests the idea not just of assistance, but of laying a hold of something, of, of, of holding fast to it, of embracing it, of devoting oneself to it. So it's not just aid from a distance, but it's it's grabbing a hold and holding on to that which is valuable and true. No matter what happens then, God won't let go of Israel. He'll keep His word, verse 55, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Those promises that He's made won't be laid aside. They'll actually be fulfilled in this very one who's being given to the world through Mary. There's something for us to remember here, my friends, as well. The fact that we too are Abraham's offspring by faith in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, 29, among other places, just say it straightforwardly. 
we are Abraham's offspring through faith in Christ and know the joy of the promises of God fulfilled. So we have to say here, looking at Mary's song, just what a beautiful and explosively joyful passage of Scripture this is. These personal and prophetic ponderings of a young teenage peasant girl on the ways and means and manifestations of God's mercy and of God's grace in His promise of a Savior. This is a breathtaking passage when we pause and let it sink into us what is being said and by whom it's being said. And it's more than just a history lesson then too, isn't it? It doesn't just tell us sort of what Mary did or said on that particular day. It gives words to our own praise and rejoicing in God's provision of our salvation. As I've said, we've sung Mary's song already this morning together as the expression of our own worship and praise. How much more meaning might be in those words if we sing them again with this in mind, her own story. One of the keys to the meaning of this particular text, one commentator wrote, is the realization that Mary's hymn is a story not only about herself, but about all those who fear God and are the objects of His mercy and grace. This is recognized by those who work on this text. This is being intended to give voice to our praise, just like the Psalms of David. This means that a joyous magnification of God should swell up in our own inner beings as we consider the salvation that so moved Mary in this text. Our mighty God has also looked on us in our humble estate and has granted us salvation such that all generations will also call us blessed. Jesus said at the end of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25, come, through the, the voice of a character, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Come, blessed ones, into the kingdom. John wrote in Revelation 20, blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection about which he's just spoken. And Paul tells us that we're blessed, we're highly favored by God in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6, which by the way is the only other place in our New Testament where the particular word is used that Gabriel greeted Mary with. Greetings, you who are highly favored. Greetings, blessed one. That comes back one other time in our whole New Testament. And it's in Ephesians 1 talking about what we have in Christ. Friends, is this the way you view your own salvation? That it's a breathtakingly glorious expression from an incomprehensibly merciful and gracious God, is this how you think of your salvation? Is it astounding to you that 
the great and holy God of all creation would be mindful of you in your lowest state? We spend most of our time trying to convince ourselves that we're of pretty high estate, don't we? Deserving of others' respect. But if any human being is ever going to be deserving of high estate, it's only the one, it's only going to happen to them through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very salvation that Mary is celebrating here. That's why I love Augustine's words. They help us get to where Mary was in her appreciation of God's mercy. He once wrote, For those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing. Humility is the second. Humility is the third. That's what we should hear this Advent season. Humble receptivity, passivity to the ways and means of God and joyous, heartfelt celebration of the salvation that He provides. Humble yourself before God. Ponder the glory of God who saves. Ponder the glory of an omnipotent monarch who yet humbles himself to achieve the deliverance of his people. That's worth pondering. That's worth meditating on. This is actually the God, Isaiah 64, who works for those who wait for him. God works. We're inactive. We receive. How does that happen? That's not usually the way it works. Marvel first at this thought. Then marvel again at the magnificent thought that he's included you, you, in his plan. In his great salvation work, he's redeemed you by faith in Christ. Gifted you, used you, and then rewarded you for your obedience. He's blessed you. And now Mary, his mother, has given you words to respond. That's why as I finish this morning, I just want to ask you the question. Do you have a song today? Do you have a song? If not, I commend this one because there are times where you just need to sing. And if you will, pray with me now even as we prepare for the table of the Lord where we will remember that great salvation that was accomplished. Heavenly Father, you are indeed a great and a glorious God. We are indeed a poor and a needy people. And yet the greatness and glory of the salvation that you provide exalts us beyond our ability to comprehend or to express your greatness is even greater than our need. 
We give thanks for that, Lord God, and it makes us sing. Oh, Father, as we leave this place today, may it be with a song in our hearts, a song of thanksgiving for the salvation that you have provided and a song that prepares our hearts for the celebration of the King who was born, remembered at this time of year, and of his promised return for which we all long to be ready. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.